to Genesis chapter 39. And you're probably saying, well, hold on, didn't we do that last week? Yes. There's so much in this chapter. I hope I can distill it down. We, we looked at the chapter as a whole last week. This, this week, there, we just have to go back and look at uh, the Joseph's temptation. There's uh, so much that we can glean from God's word in regard to temptation. And I wanted to uh, return there and, and help us unpack that together. I came to understand the devastating nature of temptation, its wreckage, while at seminary. The church that uh, Carrie, my wife, and I had attended uh, back in Connecticut, we'd left Connecticut to attend Gordon-Conwell, but this church we attended back in Connecticut had hired a new youth pastor before we left. And I was still in touch, and we were still in touch with a lot of people in that church, and so we heard about that church quite often and heard that it was growing, that they had to start another service, and the youth group was, was flourishing under this new youth pastor. We also heard that the youth pastor's wife had become pregnant for the first time, and we were overjoyed to hear that. See, all seemed to be going well. Then I got a call one day telling me that the youth pastor had just disappeared. He didn't come to work. He didn't come home one day. And a search was, was put on for him. They searched high and low. They did some investigation. And they, they, some of the investigation included uh, looking on his computer to see where he possibly would have gone, where he was searching. And, and what they found there were, were just copious, copious amounts of Internet pornography. A few days later, it was revealed that the youth pastor was actually having an affair with the pastor's wife. All while his wife was newly pregnant. It broke up the youth pastor's marriage. It split the church. And I'm sure that there are wreckages in people's lives in trusting Christ, in trusting pastors and trusting under-shepherds, trusting the church, that we still, it's still going on. And I'm sure all that started with a seemingly innocent glance at each other at a meeting. We're told in Scripture that temptation is not sin. Our Lord Jesus was tempted in all ways, it says in Hebrews 4.15, yet did not sin. Temptation is not sin. But I think how we, as forgiven sinners, approach temptation is really critical. How we deal with temptation is really critical. And that's why we've returned to this text. The scripture we have before us this morning is probably one of the primary Old Testament texts on temptation, the nature of it, and also how to navigate temptation. So look with me at starting in verse 6 
of chapter 39, the second half of 6. God's word says, Now Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. And after a time, his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph and said, Lie with me. But he refused and said to, to his master's wife, Behold, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in the house. He's put everything that he has in my charge. He is not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except you, because you're his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? And as she spoke to Joseph day after day, he would not listen to her, to lie beside her, or to be with her. But one day when he was in, went into the house to do his work and none of the men of the house were there in the house, she caught him by his garment saying, lie with me. But he left his garment in her hand and fled and got out of the house. As soon as she saw that he had left his garment in her hand and had fled out of the house, she called the men of her household and said to them, see, He has brought among us a Hebrew to laugh at us. He came in to me to lie with me, and I cried out in a loud voice. And as soon as he heard that, I lifted up my voice and cried out. He left his garment beside me and fled and got out of the house. Then she laid up his garment by her until her master came home. And she told him the same story, saying, The Hebrew servant whom you brought among us came in to me to laugh at me. But as soon as I lifted up my voice and cried, he left his garment beside me and fled out of the house. As soon as his master heard the words that his wife had spoken to him, his wife spoke to him, This is the way your servant treated me. His anger was kindled. And Joseph's master took him, And put him into prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined. And he was there in prison. Heavenly Father, give power to the words that I say. May they be from you. May they help your people and convict your people and rebuke your people and train your people in righteousness. In Jesus' name, amen. I wanted to return because there is so much that we can learn from Joseph's temptation. Back in Genesis chapter 4, verse 7, God actually sets the stage for the rest of redemptive history in this way. If you remember that verse, it's with the temptation of, of Cain and Abel. And God says to Cain, sin is crouching at your door. It's desires to have you but you must master it. That kind of sets the stage for the rest of our lives, isn't it? That is true because our fallen nature, because our nature is now fallen, because of the fall, our desires have been rewired badly. And we actually desire that which is sinful. That's why we have such a hard time resisting it. 
That's why we have such a hard time saying no to it. That's why it's like the water that we naturally swim in. Sin is natural to us. That's why there's so much pleasure in it. And so we need to be highly aware that each and every situation that you're in, each and every situation that you're in, there is the temptation to sin. It literally crouches at your and my door and desires to have us, desires to master us. And so we'd better know the nature of temptation. And that's why I wanted to speak to you first about the nature of temptation. Just as a recap, Joseph has been sold into slavery in Egypt. He's down in Egypt now. He's been bought by the captain of the guard, Potiphar. He's been working in his house at this time, verse 6 on, probably about 10 years. We're not told exactly here. He's worked his way up from a slop bucket slave to in charge of the whole household. But he's also, in that time period, matured into a man. He went from teenager to young manhood. And Potiphar's wife noticed. Verse 6 tells us that he was handsome in form and appearance. You have to remember that, that Joseph comes from a long line of, of beautiful people. Sarah, right? So beautiful that Abraham lied twice to protect himself. Rebecca, beautiful. Rachel, the same Hebrew words are used for Joseph that are used for Rachel. Beautiful in form and appearance. He was a gorgeous specimen. That's what we can say about Joseph. And Potiphar's wife Notice, look with me at verse 7. says that right there, after a time his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph. Cast her eyes on Joseph. I want you to underline that if you're an underliner. The NASB says, looked with desire at Joseph. And it's here that we learn that most temptation is visual. Most temptation that will come into your life will be visual. Not all, but most temptation. The Apostle John, in his second letter, wrote that the world will tempt us by the desires of our flesh, the desires of our eyes, and the pride of life. He identified the visual aspect of temptation. Much of our temptation comes to us visually. That's just its way in through our eyes. You see a person dressed a certain way, hair a certain way, body a certain way and you either enter into envy and covetousness or judgmental and gossip. Perhaps you begin to notice and see that you're, you're not treated as well as others in your company, your workplace, by your spouse, by your friends, by people at church even. And you begin to seethe underneath and become angry. You see a person living a certain lifestyle socioeconomically. They're comfortable. They don't seem to worry about finances. They're not struggling. They can do what they want when they want. 
And you want that life. And so, whether you know it or not, you begin sculpting your little heart idol of comfort, of ease, of finances, of money. The eyes are just the usual way in to te- for temptation. I mean, this, is, this is what we see over and over in Scripture, isn't it? Just a few books further in, in the Bible, we come to the book of Joshua, where they have this great victory at Jericho, and then they go up to this little teeny town of Ai, and they're defeated. And they wonder why, and God shows that there was some sin that went on at Jericho. And it's whittled down to Achan and his family, isn't it? If you remember the story. And in Achan's confession, he says this to Joshua and the people of God. He says, When I saw the plunder, a beautiful robe from Babylonia, 200 shekels of silver, and a wedge of gold weighing 50 shekels, I coveted them and I took them. That's the sequence, isn't it? I saw, I coveted, I took. I saw, I coveted, I took. I saw with my eyes, I coveted with my heart. Action is born out of it. And so you see a handsome man or a beautiful woman and you tuck that image away. You begin to mull over that image in your mind and you recall it and you play the film like a spark you, that you're putting dry tender around and blowing on it. It starts to become a flame and lust begins to build exactly what happened to Potiphar's wife. That's the pattern. That's exactly what can happen to you and I. There's a Scottish rhyme that goes like this. Sounds better with a Scottish accent. I'm not going to do it. Be careful, little eyes, what you see. Be careful, little eyes, what you see. Your father's above. He's looking down in love. Be careful, little eyes, what you see. Brothers and sisters, we have to be vigilant on what our little eyes see. Second thing we notice is that in the nature of temptation is it's continual, don't we? It's continual. James, in the first chapter of his book, he writes, When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when, by his own evil desires, he is dragged away and enticed. And then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. Potiphar's wife had lingered on Joseph and the desire had built, the covetousness had built. She saw, she coveted, and now she wanted to act. And she said, come lie with me, verse 7. Come lie with me. I'm sure it was said in, in the most delicate and inviting way. But he refused, right? He said, no, it says I, he refused. Wouldn't it be easy if, if victory over temptation was one and done? Wouldn't that be great? If it was just, no, ah, oh, I'm free. But that's not what this text tells us either. 
tells us it was continual. That, that sin continues to crouch right outside your door. I would imagine that, that at times Potiphar's wife was literally right outside his door waiting. Verse 10 teaches us that she tempted him, she came to him, she spoke to him day after day. Day after day, imagine that. She probably was right there every single day saying such tempting words to him. That's the way it is for temptation for us. It's continual. It's continual because of of three factors. Three factors that are not going anywhere in our life. And those factors are the world, Satan, and your flesh. You want to know why temptation is always crouching at your door? It's because the world is always tempting us to go with the prevailing winds. Always. Satan is going to be tempting us to go with the prevailing winds. And our flesh wants to go with the prevailing winds. And all three will always be with you. The world, we live in the world. Satan, he's like the Terminator. He doesn't give up. He's just coming back again and again and again. And our flesh, even though we have a new creation, Romans 7 tells us that we still have the old nature. And they're at war with each other, right? That's the war that we feel. You know, listen to Paul's words as he was struggling with this as I read it. Paul, the apostle, says, I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do. And that which I hate, i.e. sin, I do. A few verses later, he says, I know nothing of good that lives within me, that is, in my sinful nature. Some of the translations there have flesh. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. My goodness, what a struggle. Do you, do, do you, are you living this right now? Or is this just some abstract theology you're listening to? Do you struggle like that? Yeah. Yeah. I do. The nature we're born with is wired towards sin. There's a saying that goes, the thing that makes men and rivers crooked is following the path of least resistance. Our flesh wants to follow the path of least resistance. And so we struggle continually. Lastly, we learn about the nature of temptation is, boy, it's dangerous to be alone. Isolation. Look at verse 11 with me. But one day when he, Joseph, went into the house to do his work and none of the men of the house were were there, she, Potiphar's wife, caught him by his garment and said those enticing words again, lie with me. Potiphar's wife got him when they were alone. I read that as intentional. 
when no one was around. That's when we are most vulnerable, when we are alone, when we think no one's around, when, when no one can see us. We are not told in Scripture what Potiphar's words were that day, but one could imagine they went something like this. Joseph, no one's here. No one has to know. It'll just be this once. Potiphar will never know. I promise. Who's going to see? We're all alone. Temptation is so powerful when we're alone. So we see through Potiphar's wife the nature of temptation. But how do you navigate through that? How do you navigate through temptation? How do we live godly lives when the prevailing wind and everything in us wants to go that way? Well, we have to navigate it. 1 Corinthians 10.13 tells us, No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful. And he will not let you, he will not allow you to be tempted beyond your ability. But the temptation, he will also provide a way of escape that you may, not be, able, that you may be able to endure it. I want to set a, a foundation here by telling you that many people misinterpret this verse. Many people think that verse means God is going to change my circumstances. He'll provide a way out by changing the circumstances, whatever they are. He's, he's God and he's sovereign and he can do that. But I think your and my experience also tell us many times he doesn't. He doesn't change the circumstances. He doesn't take away the desire. Lord, if you don't want me to sin in this way, just take away my desire. It doesn't work that way. Lord, take away the circumstances. That's not the way that it normally works. There's a saying, one boat goes east, one boat goes west. By the same self-wind that blows... It's the set of the sails and not the gales that determine which way it goes. To resist temptation, to go in a different direction, to go upwind, to go against the the prevailing wind, to go upstream, takes intentionality. You You have to rig your sail to go against the prevailing wind. Otherwise, you will be blown that way. And we see that Joseph set his sail ahead of time by first of all building godly character. He built godly character. And to navigate temptation, you have to take a long view of it and go, I'm going to start building godly character. In verse 8, Joseph said, Joseph refused Potiphar's wife's come on. And he was prepared for this. Maybe he saw the way she looked at him over time. Maybe, maybe he noticed the way she was dressing in his presence. Maybe she, she, he, under, he saw how she positioned herself around him all the time. We don't know. But he, 
I think he got it. And he started preparing himself for this. 1 Peter 3.15 says, Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give a reason for the hope that you have within us. One of the underlying principles of, of being a disciple of, disciple of Christ, a follower of Christ, is to be prepared. Not just in, in, in sharing your faith and sharing the gospel, but also be prepared for temptation. You have to prepare yourself for temptation. Verse 8 and 9, Joseph, we see that Joseph was prepared to give an answer when she came on to him. He knew what he was going to say. He was prepared to say no. He had his reasoning all worked out there in verses 8 and 9. Listen, Potiphar has given me all this responsibility. You know, we're almost co-equals here. He trusts me. How can I do such a thing? He knew what he was going to do when it came down to it, and we see that a little later on in verse 11 and 12. I'm going to get out of here if it gets to that point. We need to prepare ahead of time for our temptations. That's what a part of what having godly character is, is you're prepared for the temptations that are going to come your way, and they will. President James Garfield was principal of Hiram College in Ohio. And a father asked him the course of study, if the course of study could be simplified so that his son might be able to graduate sooner. Garfield replied, certainly. I can simplify it. But it depends on what you want to make out of your boy. When God wants to make an oak tree, he takes a hundred years. When he wants to make a squash, it takes him two months. What kind of character do you want? What kind of character do you want? Squash character? Or oak character? Have you ever prepared how you're going to act what you're going to say when a particular temptation comes your way. Have you ever thought of that? When he or she asks to ride in the same car with you, alone. Have you thought about that? When you hear a particularly juicy bit of gossip, have you prepared? Teens, when you're offered alcohol, or drugs? Have you prepared? Have you thought ahead of time what you're going to say? Girls, when he says, I love you, and this is what people in love do, have you prepared? Joseph had prepared for months. Maybe years. Not only what he was going to say, but also he was preparing to take the consequences. Did you notice that in the second half? He was prepared to take the consequences. Please, people of God, do not read the Bible in a vacuum. Joseph was an intelligent guy. 
he was looking at the situation coming and he's going, okay, if I say no enough, I'm going to get into trouble. And that's exactly what happened. He had prepared for that. When he fled and left his garment in her hands, don't think for a moment that he said, out of there. He stopped at some point and said, oh my goodness. What is she going to do with that garment? I'm in real trouble. That's part of godly character too, brothers and sisters. It's preparing for the consequences. When you say no to something culture says yes to, when you don't act a certain way, we have to prepare for with godly character around schools telling us you cannot open your mouth and say Jesus. You cannot talk about a creator. You have to prepare. You have to prepare for the bosses that will tell you, you know what, just fudge the numbers so that we look good this quarter. You have to prepare when friends and family and culture press in Press in hard and say, you, you have to be more politically correct around homosexuality and gay marriage and transgender. That's not on our doorstep anymore. That's in our house. You have to prepare for those things. You have to think through them. How are you going to be godly at those moments. Whatever it is, the refrain is the same. Deny your beliefs or suffer the consequences. Fall in line or line yourself up for a fall. Yet Joseph showed forethought and character. Godly character is formed not in the moment, but, but over time. So prepare. Second principle we see here is that he loved his neighbor. He actually loved his neighbor. In verses 8 and 9, we see this interchange between he and Potiphar's wife. And he says, Behold, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in his house. He has put everything he has in my charge. He is no greater than in his house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except you, because you're his wife. Last line. How then can I do this great wickedness? and sin against God. Joseph thought about the effects on Potiphar. Didn't he? How could I do such a wicked thing against Potiphar? Potiphar has shown me nothing but but care and love and acceptance. Philippians 2, 3 commands us, do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others better than yourself. That's the principle there. I mean, Joseph cared for Potiphar more than he cared for himself. Joseph considered Potiphar more consistent. He considered the effects on that married man if he did this wicked thing. When you actually love your neighbor's as yourself, 
that will restrain your temptation. Thirdly, we see here that Joseph hated the sin. He hated the sin. Again, verse 9, how can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? Joseph viewed adultery as wicked, evil sin. And you know how our culture talks about it? In really enticing ways. An affair. We have to learn to call sin, sin. Parents, use proper biblical language when you're bringing your children up. Say, honey, that was sin. Not a naughty thing to do. That was sin. We have to learn to use that biblical language so that it goes from here to here that that is a wicked thing. I hate sin. For us, resisting temptation on any level is developing the same attitude towards sin as God has towards sin. And God's attitude towards sin is he hates it. He hates sin like we hate cancer. If that is a helpful analogy, use it. Because what sin does to us spiritually is what cancer does to us physically. It eats us away. It weakens us. It makes us sick. And it eventually kills us. Fourth principle that we see here for navigating temptation is that Joseph loved God. He loved God. He says, how can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? Joseph not only loved his neighbor Potiphar, but he loved God and didn't want to hurt him. I grew up hearing Greek and Roman myths. That's just the way my mother was. She was classically trained, and, and she, I grew up hearing about Narcissus and Daphne and Apollo and Persephone and Hades and Theseus and the Minotaur and Icarus and Daedalus and all those. One of my heroes growing up was Odysseus. He's one of my heroes. He became one of my heroes, Ulysses in, in Roman mythology. In one Greek myth, Odysseus wanted to hear the song of the sirens. I don't know if you know this myth. The sirens were gorgeous but dangerous creatures that lived on rocky crags on islands. They were part bird and part human. And the sirens would sing a mesmerizing song. And ships that passed would hear that song and would be drawn in and their ships were laid waste on the rocks. One time, Odysseus wanting to hear their song and live, he had his crew tie him to the mast and then he had his crew stuff beeswax in their ears so they couldn't hear the song, but he could. And they rode past and as Ulysses or Odysseus heard the song, he was crying out for his men to turn and go towards it, go towards it, but they couldn't hear. So he, they sailed on by. Now, that's one strategy <laughs> to deal with temptation. 
And, and that strategy is called white-knuckling it. I can do this. If I have enough will, I can do this. I can get through this. But I want to put forth a better way. A more powerful way, if you will, for you to resist temptation. And that comes from another traveler, another myth, called Jason, who wanted to pass by the same sirens. However, Jason took along Orpheus. Orpheus was a gifted harpist. It was said in mythology that his harp would make the rocks dance. It was so beautiful. And so as Jason and his crew passed by those same sirens, he had Orpheus begin to play his harp. And they were so in love with Orpheus' music that they didn't even hear the song of the sirens. They ignored it. And they sailed right past. When temptation comes, the power to resist that temptation is to love something more. And that is loving God with all your heart, all your mind, all your soul, and all your strength. You have to love something more than that, the love of that sin in order to conquer it. One of the most powerful weapons in your arsenal against temptation is to fall head over heels in love with Jesus Christ. And that brings us to our last principle to navigate temptation, that is to take drastic measures. Take drastic measures. Verse 11 and 12, when she came to him and nobody was around, she grabbed his cloak and said, come lie with me. No one will know. He just left. He fled, it says. It's the same words I think that Paul was thinking of when he was penning the first letter to the Corinthians, that immoral culture, and he said in chapter 6, verse 18, flee from sexual immorality. He might have been thinking of chapter 39. Joseph ran away. He wasn't going to stay and reason with her or tell her again what he had already told her. It was too dangerous. He took drastic measures. There's a time and a place in our life, and I say that methodically because not always, but there is a time and a place in our lives of temptation towards sin that we have to take drastic measures. Jesus said as much in Matthew 5, didn't he? Metaphorically speaking, he said, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better for you to lose one of your members than your whole body thrown into hell. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better for you to lose one of your members than for your whole body to go to hell. What Jesus is saying metaphorically is take drastic measures. Sin is serious. So if you're tempted toward gossip, what drastic measures are you going to go to? Confessing to a few people in the congregation that your proclivity towards gossip is big and asking them to keep you accountable? Or how about leaving conversations? Or how about leaving friendships that are based on gossip? We all have them. If you're tempted towards greed, what drastic measures are you willing 
to go to. Give away your fortune. Give it away. Ask for lesser pay. Don't work in industries, certain industries. If you're tempted towards infidelity with a woman at the office, what drastic measures are you willing to go to so that that cancer doesn't kill you? Change jobs. Sell your house and move away. If you're tempted towards internet pornography, what drastic measures are you willing to go to? Cutting off your internet at home? Getting rid of a laptop? Or a desktop? Or how about looking really weird in this society and carrying around a flip phone? You laugh. It might take that. Do you love God and love your neighbor so much that you're willing to take drastic measures? Because there's one person that did. He took it so seriously. He took sin so seriously that we have his broken body right here and the blood that he shed. That's what this table is all about, you know, taking sin seriously. When you take these elements, and I say these, you know, some people say mystical words, some say institutional words from Scripture that say, on the night that he was to be betrayed, he took bread and he broke it and he gave it to his disciples saying, take and eat, this is my body. Do you know what he was saying there? I take sin so gravely serious that I am willing to take your punishment for that sin. I'm willing to, to, to be cancerous for you. I'm willing to be eaten away for you. This is serious, how serious God takes sin. And temptation is not sin, but it's the way in. Elders and deacons, come up and help me serve this.